0: Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: For today's Not Just the Tudors, I went on the road to visit the absolutely gorgeous Hoburn Museum in Bath. After dilly-dallying in their general collection i popped upstairs to visit their wonderful little exhibition, The Tudors, Passion, Power and Politics. It's filled with portraits from the National Portrait Gallery and elsewhere and is a who's who of Tudor England. There's the two Henrys, Raleigh, Drake, Sidney and Cecil, Cromwell and Cranmer. There's the Queen's regnant, Mary, Jane, Elizabeth and also Mary, Queen of Scots. And there are three Queen's consort as well. The exhibition will be in Bath until May the 8th, and then it moves up to Liverpool. And wherever you go and see it, it's a wonderful opportunity to go and look these people in the eye. I met the Holborn curator, Montserrat Pismarcos. Montserrat, here we are in Bath at the Holborn Museum. How is it that all these masterpieces from the National Portrait Gallery and elsewhere
2: are here in this lovely little exhibition? Well, considering that the National Portrait Gallery is currently closed for refurbishment, we entered a partnership with them to stage this wonderful exhibition and be able to take these portraits away from London for a little while and show them in the Southwest. So it starts here in Bath and it will later move up to Liverpool? It will indeed, and it will expand. So we have 27 works currently on display and it will become about 100 objects in Liverpool but the sections will be the same and all the members of this cast will remain and will stay on.
1: And I quite like a small exhibition myself. You can get round it, you can look at things that close up. You're not too exhausted, you go for a cup
2: of tea. This exhibition, because it's done in two parts, this first bit of the exhibition, in a way, is presenting the cast. OK, so here we have the who's who, and we'll have to go to Liverpool later and see the rest of the story. You must.
1: So we start with these playing card type portraits of Henry VII and Elizabeth <laughs> of York. They really indicate to us that the Renaissance hasn't quite happened in England at the time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> is that unfair? I would say the portrait of Henry the Seventh is a really interesting piece to look at not just because it is a wonderful portrait, but also because it has a couple of details that are very of the time. So one of them is the frame. It is a single piece of oak that was carved from, so the frame is original, is integral to the panel. And the other thing is that it's dated, and that's not something that we can say of all to the portrait. So we know for sure that this was painted on the 29th of October, 1505. So we have the exact date in which this portrait was taken from the life which is, I guess, something still very relatable, the fact that we like to keep track of when we have our portrait taken or when we take this significant photo of our lives. So it was the same for the king. He was being painted as a way of selling himself as a suitable match for a princess in continental Europe. But unfortunately, the marriage didn't go ahead.
1: But we don't know who the artist is. It's strange that the inscription doesn't give us that detail unless... This Herman is
2: (laughs) the name (laughs) of his first name. It seems unusual that we know when it was painted, but not by whom. We know who it was commissioned by, yes, but... We didn't always know the names of artists at the time. And the name of the artist, although being relevant in terms of payment, the vision of the artist as we understand it today didn't fully exist. An artist was a craftsman and something would be made in their workshop and it would be made by that workshop. But even if it was made by a student, as long as the signature, the brand was on, it would be passed as being this artist or another. So the fact that we've lost so many names is not so surprising, really. They were just servants, really? Well, artisans, yes. Cross people
1: Elizabeth of York. Then she always, to my mind, does look like she's playing in Alice in Wonderland <laughs> <laughs> in this particular portrait. And I
2: think it is because there's not a great depth to it. This is a later work, and so it wasn't produced, unlike Henry from, from the Seventh from sitting from the life. And yes, as you say, some of that depth has been lost because if it was a pattern at all, then you're working from an earlier pattern or you're just copying another work. If you carry on translating things at some point, some detail will be lost. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, the next pairing we have that have, I think, relatively recently been put back together is Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. Mm -hmm. And I love these pictures. So his is from 1520s, as hers from the similar date.
2: Just about These two portraits, as far as we know, were never hung together. But the fact that they are hanging together is something that would have been done very frequently, which was pairing up the king and the queen and displaying the two portraits side by side. In this case, looking into each other as they are. And again, pointing out frames, the frame that Catherine of Aragon is framed in is an original frame, which is quite different from what we maybe have in our minds about gilt red, black and gilt. So it's much more colourful than our usual frames. And the portrait of Henry VIII is also interesting because it's a young king, Henry VIII. And if you look at the portrait, he's facing to one side. He's playing with a ring that he's wearing on his pinky. And it's very similar in the typology to the portrait of his father, Henry VII. We haven't seen a great change in the type of portrait in these few years, these 15 years that have between the two portraits. And we know that this portrait was based on an earlier pattern of the monarch and from x-ray and conservation work we know that at the time this portrait was painted his features had changed slightly he had gained some weight as well he wasn't the youthful king that had been painted earlier and so that was adjusted as well in the portrait to make him look more of his age in early 30s
1: but what i like particularly about the picture of catherine is that you can see that little hint just a little hint under the gable hood of her red hair Mm -hmm. and You get the sense of the hood hanging down behind her with the black velvet and then very tiny, delicate detail of what appears to be the sort of lawn undershirt under her gown, you know, and there are these little moments where it gives something away of Mm -hmm. character. You can't really read character into portraits, but it gives something away of at least her dress.
2: Indeed, I think one of the strongest suits of this exhibition really is that it allows you to spend some intimate time with these likenesses and they are very familiar likenesses. It's very rare that someone sees an image of Henry VIII and they don't know it's Henry VIII, particularly in the UK. And we seem to be very familiar with these images but then we stand in front of them and we start realizing all these details like the red hair you just mentioned, like the undershirts. In this case in particular you can even see the under drawings, so and you can see around the neck. You can I see wondered online. what that was. Thank That's you. the under yes. multi-original portrait. And there is a lot of that going on in the exhibition, the opportunity of standing very close to them and looking at them in real detail and rediscovering, even though, as you say, that it's really hard to make out the personality of someone from a portrait. Our next is Henry VIII, and this is after
1: Holbein, so this is based on the picture that everyone will bring to mind. Exactly. Yes. But it's a three-quarter version I think it's very similar to one that's in Italy, actually, but I've never seen this one
2: before. This is one of these sort of rediscoveries. It's probably one of those stories that every curator would like to experience in their lifetime, their professional career. So this painting belongs to the Victoria Art Gallery here in Bath, and for many years it was on display at the Guildhall and at some point in its history, it was taken down and they decided to perform dendrochronology on the object, which is dating the panel according to the rings of the tree, and it's quite accurate in giving an estimate of when the tree was felt, not necessarily when the portrait was painted, but obviously, if the tree was felt at a certain date, the portrait was probably painted not long after it was felt. And surprisingly, the chronology said that the tree had been felled in the 1530s. And so it's almost potentially a contemporary of the Whitehall mural, which is the original work that inspired this one. So it turned out to be a genuine to the portrait. So it's one of these wonderful discoveries that suddenly you find yourself in your hands with.
1: That's so exciting. I always think the fact that we have so many versions of this portrait, this of course is the one where Henry is looking out at the spectator, and he's a much bigger man now, a yes. huge gown and dripping with jewels, it testifies to what Tudor courtiers thought they were supposed to think about him, that they got themselves one of these pictures.
2: So I think it makes sense that they were produced in his lifetime. Absolutely, and I think one of the things that the Tudor era really did to great success was succeeding in propaganda in the best possible way. The fact that the the effigies of the monarchs were reproduced so extensively in so very different media, um, from print to portraiture to medals and coins, etc., in the end contributed to creating this very strong image of the monarchy and the dynasty, but so much so that even today it's gone beyond the Tudor reign. It's gone into our times. And the detail on here, once again, the ermine. Yes, you can touch it almost.
1: You can. So his gown is lined with ermine and you can see it poking out at the sleeves and it looks like this wonderfully warm thing to wear. Yeah, absolutely. And then we've got his second and third queens, Anne Boleyn, from later <laughs> in the 16th century. But... It's Jane I really want to talk about yeah, here, because absolutely. this is a fascinating portrait. After Holbein, a picture everyone will probably be able to think of of Jane, this is another version of that, but it's unfinished. Mm-hmm. And some parts
2: of it so brilliantly finished, and other parts still to do. Do you know anything about the story behind this? There are several theories as to why it may have been left unfinished. One of them could be the death of the Queen. It could have been in progress, and then... No one was expecting her to pass so suddenly, and then the portrait was abandoned. Another theory might be that it was commissioned by the Seymour family after her death, and the Seymour family, for some reason or other, fell out of favor with the monarchy, and again the portrait was abandoned. We don't really know. We do know it was interrupted at some point in its history, and as you say, it was going to be a wonderful portrait, full of detail. But at the moment, it's really interesting in its own right because you can see the process of painting a Tudor portrait, so you can see the contrast between between the highly finished hands with all the shadows and the three-dimensionality. And then those hands are poking out of sleeves that are completely unfinished. You can only see the underdrawing and the preparation for applying gold leaf in the jewels. But that's all of it. And so strange that other parts of it have finished so well. Yeah. The, the background. That shows that portraits were painted in stages and you wouldn't go from right to left or from top to bottom. You would apply things in, at different points in the production of the um, portrait. So it was really a skill and it's really intricate. and It's not just as straightforward as drawing something and then painting over it. It would require several layers of work.
1: Yes, and her headdress, I now notice, is unfinished Isn't as finished. well. Yes, it is indeed, yes. Should we talk about some of the supporting cast? <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, let's. <laughs> We've got Moore and Cramer and Cromwell. Which do you find most interesting? Gosh. I think that all three Thomases are really fascinating. I really like the portrait of Thomas More, the three-dimensionality of him, the gaze, how intently he's looking or whatever he's looking beyond the portrait, the colours as well, the green, the velvet in the red sleeves he's wearing. I think it's a really good copy, because this is based on an original, that it's in, in New York in the mm-hmm. film collection. And it's a wonderful portrait, I would say.
1: Yes, it's a very fine copy, isn't it?
2: Mm-hmm. indeed. But then there are other details in the other portraits which are also striking. So if you look at the chair that Thomas Clunmer is sitting on with all that inlay, probably of oriental design, you can see the mother of pearl shining. And it's, again, so intricate. We don't know if it's based on a real chair, potentially. And same with the pattern on the... On the table, or it a carpet on a table. Yeah. yeah, And also,
1: we've got inscriptions. There's a letter on the table covered with a carpet in front of him, which is addressed to him. And mm-hmm. then there's books, he's holding a book that says the epistles of Paul. I love that detail, those sort of inclusions. are trying yeah. to give you clues about the person, aren't they?
2: Definitely, yes. It was very common for these portraits to have inscriptions. There are some of them we cannot longer read, but yes, they added an extra layer of information to the piece.
1: We're talking inscriptions. Here we are now in front of the picture known as King Edward VI and the Pope, although I think other people might call it to mind if I say the deathbed scene of Henry VIII. And there are these inscriptions this is Henry sitting on his bed this is completely propaganda really pointing (laughs) at Edward with his council and in the background we can see iconoclasm and we've got the Pope being knocked over by a book that says the word of the Lord endureth forever. But I love the fact that we have At least three places where it looks like they intended other inscriptions
2: that aren't there. That aren't there, and probably never were. So we don't know exactly what was meant to go in there. This painting was probably produced during Elizabeth I's reign, and it was probably a response to her being excommunicated by the Pope. So we can only infer that it must have been something in support of the Reformation, but we don't know for sure. As a bonus track, uh, we have Thomas Cranmer twice in the exhibition, so he is included in that painting as well. Yes, (laughs) Edward Seymour, presumably, and John Dudley, and Mm -hmm. all the rest of them.
1: Yeah. And it's not a terribly flattering picture of Elizabeth's father, really. No, it really isn't. And he seems to be in a very cold bed, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) It's such an interesting picture.
0: Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from history hit, patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustolium's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from rust Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Among our cast of supporters, of course, a crucial servant of Elizabeth I was Sir Francis
2: Walsingham, whom we have next. Tell me about this picture. This picture is quite a small portrait compared to the others in this exhibition. It's, I believe, quite a striking and captivating likeness of the spy master of the Queen, really. But it also has a bit of a secret. During conservation, it was discovered that underneath this painting, there is another painting, which is a devotional image of the Virgin and Child, very similar to Hans Membling's painting in the Prado Museum in Madrid. The reason why it was painted over, we don't know. We can only venture that perhaps the subject was not as popular in reforming England as it could have been in the past. There's, I guess, some sort of irony in thinking that a spy master would be hiding a painting underneath, but we don't really know the reason why. And next him before a
1: younger man, Sir Philip Sidney, 23 years old at the time he was painted,
2: who was
1: famous, even in his own lifetime. He
2: was very much indeed, yes. He was also the son-in-law of Sir Francis Walsingham, so we hung them together because in the end they were family members. But yes, he was so famous that when he died very young because he was killed in war, there was a public outpour of grief. He was a very well-known man at the time. What do you think this portrait has to tell us about him? He is presenting himself as a courtier. His left hand is resting on his sword, But he is definitely appearing as someone of high-breeding and cultivated man, not just a man of war, but also a man of court and a man of refined skills.
1: It's rather ironic that he's wearing one piece of armour around his neck Mm -hmm. when, as I understand it, he died because he wasn't wearing (laughs) (laughs) armour over his thighs. So it's slightly bittersweet there to see this fine piece of armour around his neck. The irony of history. (laughs) Our next portrait is of William Cecil, Baron Burley, as he was. And it again shows the sort of beautiful way that artists of the time could depict black because it was Mm -hmm. such an indicator of wealth. You can see the sort of layers of black fabric here. Quite a wonder.
2: If anyone has seen any portraits of William Cecil, he looks very similar in all of them. Because he was notoriously difficult to pin down for painting a portrait. So, the busy man, perhaps. But the busy man, I'm probably not very keen on having his portrait made. So, most of his portraits are all based on the same pattern, which is like adaptations. So, it's one of those that is quite easy to recognize once you realize it's him. Now, you've
1: got several different portraits of Elizabeth in this exhibition, and some of the most famous ones, actually. Here mm-hmm. we have the Darnley portrait. Why is this so well known and so important?
2: We know for a fact that it was painted from the life. And that's not something we can say of all the portraits of Elizabeth. So this is probably the closest or one of the closest renditions that you can get to the real queen. And again, like we were saying with Henry VIII, she was reproduced so many times that sometimes it can be a bit dizzying to try and make out what she really looked like. So we know for sure that this one was something that was one that was painted with the queen sitting in front of the artist. So, I guess that's why it's a captivating one.
1: One thing that really strikes me, it's a fairly banal thing to say, but is that she looks so much like a cross between Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. She has <laughs> his red hair, his long nose, his little mouth, and
2: her dark, striking eyes. She does indeed. One interesting thing about the Darnley is that Elizabeth is always been reputed with being very pale and using and abusing in her makeup. And Maybe that image is also influenced by portraits like this one, when in fact we know that when it was originally painted, she had rosier cheeks than we can see today. So to modern audiences, we might look at her and think, oh, she was really pale, but she wouldn't have looked as pale as she does today.
1: Let's have a look at the other portraits we've got of her and compare. Mm -hmm. And here's one by Nicholas Hilliard, the pelican portrait, as it's known. The clothing is so rich and so three-dimensional, and yet her face feels very flat indeed. Mm
2: -hmm. It does. But you have to bear in mind that if you didn't have the subject sitting in front of you and you were basing your work on a pattern, it was much easier for you to paint jewels or pearls that you could have more easily access to or you could have more of an image of them in your head than it would be the actual person. So that could explain... And then, of course, all of these paintings have been restored and modified over time. Faces were one of the things that were most heavily retouched throughout history. Tell me about the symbolism of this. She's wearing this jewel, which is pelican-shaped, and that's why the portrait is called a pelican portrait. And pelicans were used in Christian iconography because they were usually depicted as beasts that would open their chests and feed their young out of their blood and their hearts. So the fact that the queen is using this jewel is a way of placing herself in that role as a pelican to her subjects, so basically feeding them or protecting them out of her own heart and her own flesh, if necessary.
1: And she's absolutely dripping in pearls. Indeed and she is.
2: <laughs> Perhaps these are black diamonds or opals? Definitely precious stones, pearls were usually connected to purity and virginity, so as we know Elizabeth I played very heavily on the idea of virginity and her purity and again that would tie in nicely with the pelican symbology and again this is a portrait that was used to establish Elizabeth as a queen who was devoted to her people and This was painted at a time when it was recognized that she would probably not marry and probably would not have offspring. So she used that narrative in her favor by saying, okay, I am not gonna have any children because you are my children already. So I am already looking after you. So why should I marry? I am your queen and I'm looking after you in this way with everything I've got. Yes,
1: it's so interesting, isn't it? If this is from the sort of 1570s and it's carrying those ideas of virgin and mother already, Mm -hmm. that becomes a kind of, cult of that only in the 1590s. It's a really early version of that message being carried to people. Mm -hmm. But I guess
2: Elizabeth was using portraiture in a very intelligent way. So if you look at the other portrait of her we have in the exhibition of a young Elizabeth, it was a portrait that was probably painted as part of marriage negotiations really early on. And you have to think that Elizabeth had experienced and witnessed firsthand how tough marriage could be. So it was fairly understandable that she would not hold marriage in high esteem, because she had seen how other women in her life had been tossed around and had suffered the consequences of good and bad marriages. And so in a way she was very intelligent by saying, be able to rule on my own, and that would make me perhaps safer.
1: Now you point out here Lady Jane Grey and Mary I, and we've got two rather lovely pictures. Mary first, perhaps, although that's not the right chronological order, but this is where we're standing. <laughs> we've got Hans Eworth. This is much smaller than I imagined. It, it? is. <laughs> <laughs> and it's an amazing piece of work.
2: Yes, it is. And the detail is so intricate. It's a joy to look at. I would say it's one of my favourite objects in the exhibition. I also like the fact that she's depicted rather youthful because roughly at the same time, she was also painted by Anthony Moore and that portrait is in the Playa Museum in again. And she looks much more aged and she looks perhaps a bit more bitter than she does here.
1: Yes, there's a sense of hopefulness here. Mm. Was this used for marriage
2: negotiations? Because I see the flower in her hand. It could have been It's a very small portrait, and these sort of portraits would be very portable, so it could be sent for negotiations.
1: That is possibly one reason why she looks a bit younger. Yes,
2: <laughs> quite probably.
1: <laughs> and we've got Jane. Mm-hmm. And this was only relatively recently identified as Jane, if I remember correctly, Mm. but she's got this gorgeous red embroidery on her shift and this lovely detail of the jewels. And actually, funnily enough, she looks older than her years. We all know she died as a teenager, but she looks like she's got a sort of weight
2: of the world on her shoulders. Hardly surprising, I would say. We don't know for sure whether this is a good or a bad likeness of her because there are no surviving portraits of her time as queen. So, we can only venture. It's possible that this was painted for a series of Protestant martyrs, so it could have been produced with not necessarily an idea of a likeness in mind, but rather just having this gallery of people who have been martyred for their faith.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And She's holding a prayer book and it gives that image of her as both regal and pious, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Indeed, yes. And we have another Mary to talk about, a Mary who is very important in Elizabeth's life, of whom you have two pictures, mm-hmm. Mary, Queen of Scots. So this little one is very interesting. Tell me about this, because it's the similar size to the picture of Mary I,
2: and to give listeners an idea, I'd say it's maybe sort of a 10 by 8. Yeah, this portrait of Mary. It was painted when Mary was in better terms, let's say, with uh, her cousin um, Elizabeth, And it was produced around the time when she went back to Scotland to to claim the throne after the death of her husband in France. And, well, she was trying to persuade Elizabeth to make her heir at some point, which we know didn't work out. But she styled herself in correspondence as the sister of the Queen, even though they were cousins. And, yeah, it's quite a nice, sweet portrait of Mary. Quite, I would say, relaxed if you don't know what's going to happen next.
1: Yes, and it is quite French in style, reminiscent of François Clouet or something like that Mm -hmm. in its
2: depiction. And over here we have another one of her. Yep, a very different one. So in this one we can see her dressed as a widow and it was painted after she had been a captive in England for about a decade and she still had quite a few years to go. It's a very different portrait to the other one. It could have been a full length at that point. We think it might have been painted from the life as well. And she's not looking that youthful or hopeful or relaxed anymore. And in fact she's wearing this rosary that is hanging from her waist with an image of Susanna and the elders, and there's a motto on that rosary that is quite hard to see at the moment, but it, it basically says, which translates as troubles on all sides, troubles everywhere. Yes, it's something quite haunting about this image.
1: Once again, it doesn't feel like it was necessarily painted from the
2: life, but do you know anything about whether it was or not? So a portrait of her was painted from the life when she was a captive. So we believe this might have been one of them.
1: That is interesting, because then the sort of furtive, discomforting look on her face takes on a whole new meaning. (laughs) Yes. We mustn't forget somebody who was as important in Elizabeth's life as Mary was, but for completely different reasons. (laughs) And that, of course, is Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, This is a very strange picture. The proportions of his body are all just quite odd. He's got a tiny waist.
2: You have to remember that this was a full length, which was cut down, and it was painted to celebrate him, his figure, during the festivities that he hosted at Kenilworth, when he was attempting to marry Elizabeth for the last time, before he gave up completely. And in the exhibition, he is hanging next to Elizabeth, but also next to Mary, Queen of Scots, because one of the multiple times that he tried to marry, the Queen said, will you marry Mary instead? And he refused. So it was a sort of private joke. He's now hanging between the two women of his life.
1: I like that, because what you've got here, the Darnley portrait and dudley facing each other Mm. as a married couple portrait would have done but they never married and he's turning his back on mary which he literally did uh he (laughs) wouldn't marry her (laughs) let's talk about what he's wearing because he's dressed in wonderfully fine attire it's a sort of salmon pink i'd say and it's got pinking slashing all over it and it has this amazing kind of trim this really speaks to wealth.
2: He was, even though he never managed to marry the queen, he was held in very high esteem and he was favoured. He was one of the favourites of the queen. So obviously he was rewarded for that favour on multiple occasions, and wealth was definitely one of the ways of rewarding loyal servants at the time.
1: And we have here one of the three copies of the Armada portrait, the one that has been cut down at some stage
2: in its life. Yes, so we can see Elizabeth up to her three portraits, basically, I would say, a bit under her waist. And we can see two massive sleeves. We only get to see a glimpse of her left hand at the bottom of the painting. And she's wearing this really intricate lace ruff and this very heavy necklace there's this green curtain and to the right and the left we can see a seascape. On the right, which is the darkest and not very visible, we would have seen the Spanish ships that sailed to the British Isles, shattering against the rocks of Ireland or the Northern Isles. And on the left we can see the English ships sailing smoothly and calmly in very tranquil seas. And um, as you've said, we've got these ropes of pearls in her hair
1: or her wig and also a massive great pearl on a ribbon at the bottom of her bodice which is very much shaped in a V and I feel can really only be saying one thing about the virginity <laughs> of that particular area of her body. It's once again replete with symbolism. mm
2: mm-hmm propaganda. But yes, this is one of the most successful propaganda portraits of, of the Queen and painted with a very specific purpose in mind, which was celebrating the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588 and the assertion of England as a budding maritime power, which would then extend into the 17th century and further on.
1: And you end the exhibition with three little
2: pictures. And I'd love to know why you chose to end with these three. So, we've got Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh, and this whole section is about expansion and empire. And they were both instrumental in expanding England's dominion of the seas and overseas territories, particularly Sir Walter Raleigh, who got the first patent to colonise or set colonies in the Americas. And then we have this double portrait, which is quite peculiar, of Henry Strangeways, who was a pirate from the West Country, and he was probably imprisoned in the tower at the same time the painter was imprisoned. And we really don't know why the painter chose to paint himself with the pirate. We think he might have fear for his life according to the inscriptions at the top of the miniature, but we don't really know the details of what happened in that era. But Strange Ways was one of the first sea dogs that used to great success because they were in the end people who had their own private enterprises but they helped keep the dominion of the seas tip it on the English side really. And we've already seen one of Flick's paintings in here so we it's have. very nice to actually yes. see him. Mm-hmm.
1: And also to know that for at least strange ways this being painted in 1554 was before he went on to this great success under elizabeth
2: yes indeed <laughs> he was almost a young man a <laughs> young pirate
1: what do you feel that you want people to take away from seeing this very interesting collection of portraits
2: i would love them to spend time with these portraits and re-engage with them and Maybe reflect on the fact that... Because that's one of the things we were trying to achieve with this layout and this sort of jewel like display. Draw the attention to the fact that we're looking at people and not just looking at portraits. We're looking at human beings that lived a few centuries before we did, but that lived through troubles, woes and joys that we could relate to. So it's bringing the human side, I suppose. Thank you
1: so much for showing me around. It's been a real treat, and I just urge... Everybody listening to this, if you are in striking distance of Bath, come down to the Holborn and see the Tudors' passion, power and politics. It's really worth
2: your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you.
1: I hope you enjoyed that tour. Do get to see the exhibition if you can. And whether you can or not, you might well enjoy the book that accompanies the exhibition, ...called The Tudors' Passion, Power and Politics. It's edited by the National Portrait Gallery curator Charlotte Boland... ...and has, among others, chapters on John Blank, ...Catherine de' Medici, Anthony Babington... ...and a chapter by Montserrat Pismarcos... ...on the Spanish and English Armadas. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just The Tudors. We now have almost 100 podcasts that we've created since last April... ...all available for you to listen to again or even discover for the first time, wherever you get your podcasts. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor, and not just the Tudor, love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com.